Let's turn in God's Word tonight to the book of Zechariah. The second to last chapter in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Zechariah. We will read chapter 1, and the text for this evening's sermon will be verses 12 and 13. As you were paging there, a reminder about the place of Zechariah. He was one of three prophets to prophesy to God's people after they had returned from captivity. So along with Haggai and Malachi, Zechariah was sent to those who had returned to the promised land after 70 years in captivity. And more specifically, Along with Haggai, Zechariah was sent to encourage the people in their work of rebuilding the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. When the God's people returned to the Promised Land, you will remember how they made a good beginning. They laid the foundation of the temple, but then they were troubled by their enemies who tried to make the work stop and went so far as to write a letter to the king of Persia suggesting that the work be stopped and the king of Persia agreed and called for the work to cease. And it was into that situation that God sent Haggai to really rebuke the people, command them to take up the work again. And along with that came the prophecy of Zechariah who was really encouraging the people in this work and encouraging them Overall, because the church was in a a low estate at that time. That's the historical backdrop. So now let's read Zechariah chapter 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants and prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Upon the fourth and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is in the month Sebat, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. And behind him were their red horses, speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. 
And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good and comfortable were good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in, in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities throughout, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Thus far we read God's Word. The text for this evening's sermon is verses 12 and 13. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me, with good words and comfortable words. In the English language, we have a saying that at times we wish we could be a fly on the wall. And by that expression, we are communicating the idea that we would love to be a silent observer, an unnoticed witness to some event or to some conversation. We want to be able to listen in and to do so in such a way that our presence does not change the dynamics of the conversation so that there's still the freedom, the openness that would characterize that conversation that we would like to listen in to. There are times we want to be a fly on the wall. Zechariah 1, verses 12 and 13 gives us the opportunity to do exactly that. Only this is not an opportunity to listen in to a conversation between two great men as they speak back and forth. 
But much more amazing than that, this is an opportunity to listen in to a conversation taking place within the Trinity, among the three persons of the Trinity. As the Son addresses the Father and speaks to the Father on behalf of the church. So that really what we have here is an example of the intercession of our Savior Jesus Christ on behalf of His people as He comes to the Lord of the hosts to pray on our behalf. And we get to listen in. We're meant to listen in. As we will see during the course of the sermon, we need to hear this conversation. The Son speaking to the Father and the the answer that comes eventually to us. Israel needed this. In the time of Zechariah, in the midst of their difficulties, in the midst of their afflictions, they needed an uplifting word. And so God sent this word to them through Zechariah and we need it still today. Lest we should become overly discouraged, lest we should become downcast. Our God gives us the opportunity to listen in as our compassionate Savior makes intercession on our behalf as a church in a low estate. So let's listen in this evening to the conversation Using as our theme, Christ's intercession for His lowly church. Christ's intercession for His lowly church. First, we will look at the compassionate prayer. Second, at the encouraging answer. And then third, the endearing revelation. Christ's intercession for His lowly church. The compassionate prayer, the encouraging answer, and the endearing revelation. The text that we are considering, verse 12, is a prayer made by the pre-incarnate Christ. But in order to understand His prayer, His intercession on our behalf, we have to understand the broader context that gives rise to this prayer. And in the broader context, and this passage comes in the broader context of Zechariah's first vision of the night. The beginning of verse 8 says, I saw by night. And this is the first of eight visions that Zechariah was given almost certainly in the course of one single night. And in this vision, the first thing he sees is a man on a red horse. Verse 8, And behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And we understand this man to be the pre-incarnate Christ. And we say that because this same man identified in verse 8 as a man riding upon a horse is later on identified as the angel of the Lord. Notice the, the similarity in the language between verse 8 and verse 11. Verse 8 speaks of a man riding upon a red horse and him standing among the myrtle trees. And then when we come to verse 11, we read, and they answered, the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees. So this is the same individual, the man on the red horse, is the angel of the Lord. And we know from the rest of the Old Testament that this angel of the Lord is not just an angel sent by God, but this is an angel who is God. He is the Lord. 
So that the one, so that the person we have here is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God, not yet having assumed a flesh and blood, but coming in the form, the appearance of a man. And he's standing in the midst of his church. That's how we are to understand the reference to the myrtle trees. Verse eight says, "And he stood among the myrtle trees." Myrtle trees being his people. So that what we have here is something very similar to what we find in Revelation 1 where John sees Christ walking among the golden candlesticks. He's in the midst of His church. So that we have the reminder that this is the Emmanuel, the One who is God with us. Really what He's doing is He's surveying His church. He's off His horse. He was riding upon it, but now He's standing in the midst of it. He's taking in the sight. And what he sees is that the church is at a low point. Verse 8 says, And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. The bottom. And the idea is that they were in the bottom of the, a valley at a, at a low point. And the symbolism here is that the church was in a low estate. The church was struggling. The church was afflicted at this time. And that matches the historical circumstances surrounding the writing of this prophecy. When God's people came back from captivity, it was only a small group who returned. Less than 50,000 people. They were under foreign rulers and under foreign oppression. They had a number of enemies surrounding them that sought to make their lives miserable. The temple had not yet been built. They were defenseless as there were no walls around the city. They were in a low estate. And Christ sees it. But He not only sees what's going on in the church, He also sees what's going on around in the world. And that comes out from what follows in the rest of the vision. For you see, Christ is not alone in this vision. Verse 8 says, And He stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind Him were there red horses speckled and white. So there's horses with Him. And Zechariah inquires about these others who are with this man. Verse 9, Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And you'll you'll notice in verse 9 we read, And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these I will show thee what these be. And notice here we read of the angel who talked with Zechariah. This is a different angel than the angel of the Lord. There's the angel of the Lord who is the Lord, and there's this interpretive angel, the angel who's sent to sort of help guide Zechariah in processing what he's seen and understanding it. And this angel will show him so that we read in verse 10, and the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these, referring to the horses, are they, which, are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And from verse 10, we recognize then that these horses are those whom the Lord sends out as agents of His providence. And that means these are the angels of the Lord our God. His servants who do His bidding. And evidently, they had been sent out to survey 
the world around, and now they've come back to report. So then in verse 11, we read, and they, that is the horses, really the angels, answered the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Christ that stood among the myrtle trees, and said, and here's what they saw when they surveyed the world around. We walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. The idea is that the world is dwelling peacefully. They are undisturbed. Everything's going well for them. There's peace and prosperity for the nations surrounding your church. And that was reported to Christ, not because He did not know it already, but to indicate that this was being brought to the foreground of His attention, as it were. So we have Christ standing in the midst of His church, well aware of her lowest state and well aware of the prosperity of the heathen nations around her. And that led Him to pray. That led Him to make intercession on behalf of the church. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt Thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which Thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years. This is a prayer of intercession because here we have the angel of the Lord who is Lord speaking to the Lord of hosts. Notice that. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, and now he's addressing the one who he calls, O Lord of hosts. And now admittedly, Apart from the doctrine of the Trinity, this verse would make no sense to us. How can one who is Lord be speaking to the Lord? But in light of the doctrine of the Trinity, it makes perfect sense. This is the Son addressing the Father. And specifically, He's praying to the Father on behalf of His church. Notice that's the objects that He's bringing forward. He says, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt Thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? He's praying for the church of that day so that this prayer of intercession is representative of His prayers for the church. And specifically, He prays that God would have mercy upon His church. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt Thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which Thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? This is a request that God would have mercy. And now, we have to understand that carefully. Because the idea is not that the Son has to persuade the Father to be merciful to the people. There are some in the broader church world who have that wrong understanding. Who suppose that the only reason who view the Father as this this cold, this angry, this cruel person. And the only reason He would ever show us any love is because the, the Son has sort of placated Him. He, he's won Him over to our side. But that's a wrong understanding. That's not what's being expressed here. And we can be confident that that's not how it works because Scripture itself makes very clear that the Father loves us. And that it's His love for us that is the explanation for why the Son came into this world 
to die for us. That's John 3, verse 16, probably the most well-known passage in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's not the only begotten Son came into this world so that the Father would love us, but it was in His love that the Father sent the Son on our behalf. So the Son here is not trying to convince the Father to be merciful. Nor is the idea that the Father is this God who sort of flip-flops back and forth between being an angry God and being a merciful God. This God is not capricious. He's not fickle. And that too needs to be said because there are some who have that wrong notion too. That one day this is a this God is the God of wrath and judgment, the God who's a consuming fire, but then His mood might change and the next day you can expect a gracious, a merciful, a loving God. But that's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is the one who does not change. The one in whom there is no shadow of turning. But that still leaves the question, how then are we to understand this intercession, this prayer. When the Son prays, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt Thou not have mercy? He is asking God to send relief for his, upon His afflicted church. For the church had indeed experienced God's disciplining hand upon them. That's the reference at the end of the verse, when it speaks of God having indignation these three score and ten years. That's a reference to the, the captivity. The fact that these people had spent 70 years in captivity and only now had been, only recently had been brought back. But even then, though they had been brought back, their circumstances, their situation, their experience was such that it felt like God's heavy hand was still upon them. And now the Son is addressing the Father. And He says, how long wilt thou not show mercy? And the idea, how long wilt thou not have mercy? And the idea is, He's praying that God would show forth His mercy. That He would give tokens of His mercy by sending relief upon the church in her low estate. And the son could pray this in full confidence that the father would hear. The son could pray in full confidence that God was able to do this because he's the Lord of hosts. That's the name that's used here. That's the address. O Lord of hosts. A name that reminds us that this God is the heavenly commander in chief. He is the God who rules over the whole of creation and every single creature I should say all the creatures are like so many soldiers in His vast army. There's nothing too hard for the Lord of hosts. He's able to do anything that He wants so that if He wants to send relief, He's able to do it. But He's not only able, He's also willing. Because this is the God of mercy. It's not just the Son who's merciful, but the triune God is merciful so that the Son is not making this petition to to make God merciful, but He's making this petition because God is merciful. And He's praying on behalf of the church that God would show that by sending 
relief, that He would act in harmony with His unfailing mercy. Christ is interceding on behalf of His church. Did you know that He did that already in the Old Testament? Certainly we're well aware that He does this now. As the ascended Lord, the the high priest who has gone before us, entered into the heavenly abode, we know that He ever lives to make intercession for us. This is His ongoing work as our priest. But what we sometimes forget is that this was true already in the Old Testament. What we might be inclined to think is that this work only started once he, he came into this world or once He ascended up onto high. But this passage makes very clear that already in the Old Testament, He was functioning as our high priest. He was praying on our behalf. And already then, He did so with a heart full of compassion. For that's what we see here. The compassion of Christ for His church. And that's evident when we link the prayer back to the context. We looked at the context. We looked at the prayer itself. And now we see the compassion that is clearly implied when you put the two together. Because Christ had been standing among the myrtle trees, at the bottom, at a low point in her history, and He was well aware of their trials, of their afflictions, of their difficulties. And what is more, He was well aware of the ease, the prosperity of the nations around them. And that too is a part of the suffering for God's people. Everything's going awful for us, but it's going so well for the world that that was a trial, an added trial for the church in that day. But what's so beautiful is that Christ responds to all that. So that this prayer of intercession is a direct response to what He had observed. Notice that in verse 12, then the angel of the Lord answered. What is He answering? He's answering the report. The news that's been brought in. Your church is in a low estate. The wicked are prospering. And he answers that by praying. By interceding on behalf of the church. And does that not show us his compassion? Does that not underscore the truth of Hebrews 4, verse 15? That we have an high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who's able to sympathize with us. This underscores the truth of Isaiah 63, verse 9, that in all of our affliction, he is afflicted. So that when he sees his church, Suffering. Struggling. Downcast. Afflicted. Hurting. 
His response is never that He's annoyed with her weakness or her frailty. He does not get frustrated and and say in response to the church, just get your act together. Nor does He coldly ignore the difficulties that we face. But His heart is filled with pity. With sympathy. For His church. And it's this compassion that that leads Him to, to act. His compassion is always coupled to His action. His his pity always goes hand in hand with His power to save. So So that here, when He sees the apple of His eye in a low estate, He responds by praying for her. He is a compassionate Savior. Child of God, do you believe that? Has that message sunk in yet? Has this truth concerning the heart of your Savior warmed your own heart over the last couple of weeks? And I put it that way because is that not, has that not been the truth that keeps popping up in sermon after sermon after sermon? Christ's compassion for His people. It's what we saw when we looked at Matthew 14, verse 14, our compassionate physician, where we saw ourselves as those who are spiritually sick, diseased. But Christ did not turn away from us. Instead, He gladly received us and He healed us in His compassion. And then we saw that when we looked at Luke 24 with Christ ascending up into heaven, we stood there with the disciples as the church who felt as though we were being left behind. What are we going to do without our Savior physically present in our midst? But again, we saw His compassion so that even as He was ascending up into heaven, He was actively blessing the church. He was making crystal clear, I'm not going to forget about you. I'm not abandoning you, but I will continue to bless you even from my throne in heaven. And we saw this when we looked at Hagar. When we could identify with her as one who felt unseen, unheard, totally alone. But then we saw that in His compassion for us, Christ finds us. He hears. He sees. And He draws near to help and to comfort. And now again tonight, we identify with this church in her lowly estate. 
And we see once again the compassion of our Savior Jesus Christ who upon observing the low estate of His church makes intercession to the Father that He would show forth mercy. So that what we've had over the last several weeks has been an unintentional mini-series on the heart of Christ for you, child of God. He is a compassionate Savior. And that brings us back to the question, do you believe this? Has this truth penetrated to the depths of your soul? And that's a fair question because we are so tempted to think otherwise. We are so tempted to view Him as this this cold, this reluctant Savior who sort of begrudgingly extends a hand of help. I guess I have to. That's not the heart of your Savior. That's not His attitude towards the church. But it's a heart of compassion. He's tender-hearted toward us and He's moved on account of our suffering and our affliction. And that compassion always leads Him to act. It's what led Him to come down into the sin-cursed world in the first place. To suffer and to die on the cross of Calvary for your sins and for mine. And it's the same compassion that leads Him to continue to act so that even as He sits at God's right hand, He ever lives to make intercession for the church. Child of God, believe this truth. Throw out the lie of the devil who would have you view your Savior in some other light. And let this truth warm your heart and soul the way it has warmed my own heart and soul over the last several weeks. And believe also this. That our God hears and answers that intercession. There is an an encouraging answer given to the compassionate prayer of our Savior. Verse 13, And the Lord answered. He answered. He did not ignore this request. He did not blow it off. He did not say, come back to me some other time. The Lord answered. And it goes on to say, the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and Comfortable words. These were good words exactly because they were comforting words. There was a a message of comfort, a message of compassion for the church. And the following context elaborates on that those good and comfortable words. It includes making clear that the Lord Himself is concerned about His church. That's verse 14. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And notice you have the Lord of hosts speaking. So this is the the Father speaking and He's making clear, I'm jealous for the church too. It's not just the Son who cares about the church, but it's the, the entire triune God 
He's filled with jealousy, with a yearning, a desire for the good of his church. And in that connection, he promises to bring restoration. That's verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, thus saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. He's saying the this project of rebuilding the temple, it will be brought to completion. The temple will be built again. And Jerusalem itself will be further established. And what is more, many people are going to be brought to live in Jerusalem. The the numbers will grow over time. That's verse 17 when he says, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad. The idea is that the population is going to increase so that the, the city swells. It gets bigger over time. These are good words and comfortable words. But there are also, there's also a word regarding the enemies who are, who are at ease, who are enjoying peace and prosperity. And that's where the second vision of this chapter comes in. Verses 18 and following. Verse 18 Then lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So that these horns are the strong nations that have been the enemies of God's people, including the enemies that brought them into captivity, that scattered them abroad in the first place. But these enemies would be judged. They would be destroyed. That's the rest of the second vision. Verse 20 and following. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what come these, the carpenters, to do? And He spake, saying, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these, that is the carpenters, are come to fray them. To cast out the horns. That is, these carpenters are going to come to to rout the horns. They're going to destroy these nations. They're going to disrupt the peace that they were enjoying and overthrow them. God is promising to judge the nations that stood opposed to God's people. And God kept this promise. These are not mere words coming from the mouth of the Lord of hosts. But all this happened. The restoration of God's people and Judah and Jerusalem because the temple was indeed rebuilt in the lifetime of Zechariah. Shortly after, he he started prophesying that the temple is completed. And what's more, later on in the history, the walls of the city will be rebuilt. More people will be brought to live in the city of Jerusalem. But yet, all of that was but a dim fulfillment compared to the fulfillment that comes in the New Testament. When the church built upon the foundation of the saving work of Jesus Christ, that is, the New Testament church is established. And thousands are are brought in so that the, the numbers in the city swell. The church grows like it had not before. God would indeed bring restoration to His church. And He would also judge and punish her enemies. 
It's rather remarkable that every nation that God ever raised up for the purpose of disciplining His people with, every one of them was eventually destroyed, broken. So that first God raises up the Assyrians and they're used to conquer the nation of Israel. But then what happens to the Assyrians? They're destroyed by the next empire, the Babylonians, whom God used as an instrument in His hand, as an axe in His hand, to discipline the nation of Judah. But then, the Babylonians were likewise conquered. And this continues over and over again. So that every time God raises up a new rod, as it were, for the sake of disciplining His people, the moment He's finished with the discipline, He breaks the rod. He's finished with it. He, he casts it out. He would destroy the enemies of His church. And in all of this, we see the Lord answering the prayer of the pre-incarnate Christ. And is it any surprise that He would answer? It's not when we stop to think about it. It's not a surprise that the Lord of hosts would answer this prayer when we remember who is raising the petition. It's His Son. And if there's anyone who has the ear of the Father, it's His natural and eternal Son. His beloved in whom He delights. Of course, He's going to hear His Son. And that especially when we add that the Son is praying in harmony with God's own will and attributes. This is not the Son making some request against the, the wishes of the Father, but this is a, the Son bringing a request that's in perfect harmony with the Father's own will and the Father's own characteristics. But then especially what seals it is that the Son made this petition on behalf, on the basis of His own Saving work. For while it's true that the Son had not yet been born of a woman, while it's true that He had not yet laid down His life, it was certain that would happen. And thus already in the Old Testament, the Son could appeal to the work that He would perform when He came in the fullness of time. And it's on the basis of that work that the Father hears the Son and shows mercy to His church. And what an encouragement this is for us. What an encouragement this must have been for Israel. The church that was but a little flock, a remnant, under foreign rule and oppression. A church struggling in her calling. God's word to her was, I will have mercy upon you. I will bring restoration. I will judge your enemies. This is God promising to strengthen the church, to, to help her, to cause her to stand. And what a boost for the church! This was meant to inject life into the, the church. This was meant to 
to spur them on in the, the work that was in front of them. Zechariah's prophecy is a prophecy of encouragement. And now that encouragement comes to us. To the church of the New Testament. To the church of the, in the world found here in 2023. A church that is a remnant, a little flock when you look at the true church in the midst of the overall world around us. church that has many enemies. The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. A church that often struggles to fulfill her God-given calling. The encouragement for the church is that our God will show us mercy. That He will look upon us in our lowest state and He will have compassion upon us. Child of God, let this truth comfort your heart. Let it spur us on. And may it also serve to endear your heart evermore to your Savior. Because this is indeed an endearing revelation that we've been given tonight. It's remarkable that we're allowed to sit in on the conversation. Not a conversation between two great men talking back and forth, but a conversation between the Son speaking to His Father. A conversation taking place within the triune God. And we are meant to hear it. And I say that not just because of the obvious fact that this is recorded for us on the pages of Scripture, but because in the vision itself, this gets communicated to God's people. Go back to verse 13 if you have your Bibles open and read that the Lord answered. Who does He answer? You're expecting it to say the Lord answered the angel of the Lord, but that's not what we read. We see we read the Lord answered the angel that talked with me. So that yes, the Father is answering the Son, but thus answer comes ultimately to this angel who's there to help interpret the one guiding Zechariah along so that this message is meant for us. It's meant for the church. We're meant to hear this. We're meant to listen in as the Son addresses the Father. So that we come to understand this fundamental truth that has been implied in everything that we've said. The revelation that any time there is relief from our suffering and affliction, it's on account of Christ's intercession. Any time there is some good and perfect gift that comes to us, it's on account of Christ's intercession for the church. That's the specific example that we see here. 
The church is in a low estate. She's afflicted. She's suffering. And the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Christ, prays on our, her behalf. And what happens? God sends relief. And the revelation that's being given to us here, the, the general truth is that this is how it always works. This is not just a, a one-time thing that Christ interceded here, but otherwise this just sort of happens apart from Him. This is how it always works, beloved congregation. Anytime there is some token of His mercy that comes upon us, it's because Christ was praying for that very thing. This applies to us as individuals. So that for the saint who endures some sort of chronic pain or some chronic ailment, and for a day or for a stretch of days, there's relief from the pain. It's not quite as bad. It's because Christ knew you needed some reprieve and interceded on your behalf. For the saint who struggles financially, but then all of a sudden receives some unexpected gift or some unexpected income, the explanation is that your Savior was praying that you would be given your daily bread. For the saint in a miserable relationship, whether it's to an employer or to a spouse or an ex-spouse, when the trial lets up for a time, when that person is not quite such a jerk that they normally are, it's because Christ will not allow the bruised reed to be broken. When the aged saint who lives all alone receives that unexpected visit from a fellow member of the church, it's because Christ knew you could not endure another moment of loneliness. Child of God, what relief have you experienced in the last days or the last weeks? What good gift have you received of late? Did you know it was because Christ was interceding on your behalf? And this applies not only to us as individuals, but it applies to the church. That's really the main application here. So that when a church embroiled in a controversy, slowly losing members, has peace and unity restored. It was due to Christ's intercession to calm the storm. So that when a church 
has the joy of babies being born into the congregation and brought forward by their parents to be baptized along with young people making confession of their faith and thereby becoming full communicant members. The explanation is because Christ was praying for the gathering of His church. Any relief from suffering and affliction, any good gift that comes to us is on account of our compassionate Savior's intercession. And we make such a point of this because most likely, most of us fail to see this. This is not something that's on our radar typically. At best, when we're, when we're spiritually minded, when we're living by faith, we confess God's providence. And that's a, a good thing to confess. That's the right starting point. God in His good providence caused this to happen in my life. But what this passage is teaching us is that we have to go a step deeper Because it's not just God's good providence. It's Christ's intercession for us. That's what stands behind the providence. A Savior who loves His church. And a Savior who's ever praying on her behalf. So as one Reformed theologian put it, quote, we have not a deliverance from trouble, a recovering of health, ease of pain, freedom from any evil that ever laid hold upon us, but it is given us on the intercession of Christ. End quote. Is that not endearing? Is this not reason to love Him? Child of God, let that be your response first and foremost. It's not the only response. Because this Word of God is an encouragement for us to pray too. The message tonight is not, well, because Christ is making intercession for us and on our behalf, well then I don't need to pray at all. That's not the idea. Because in the surrounding history, we see God's people praying. In the preceding history, we see Nehemiah praying that the people would be allowed to return from captivity. In the sub, excuse me, we see Daniel praying that the people would be allowed to return from captivity. In the subsequent history, we see Nehemiah praying that Jerusalem would be restored, that the walls would be built up again. And so it's good that we too pray. Praying in the confidence that we have a mediator. That we have a high priest who who takes our prayers and makes our prayers his own and, and brings those prayers to the Father on our behalf. So there is indeed encouragement for us to pray. But the main thing is that this is reason to love Him. How else shall we respond to this glorious truth That our compassionate Savior 
is interceding on our behalf. And it's that intercession that is the explanation for any and all relief from suffering and affliction and every good gift that comes to us. Child of God, He loves you so much. And now may the knowledge of His love be what spurs us on to love Him in response. Amen. Father in heaven, how shall we respond to this word? Other than by saying collectively, Hallelujah. What a Savior. We thank Thee for the compassion of our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for His intercession on our behalf. And we thank Thee especially for His saving work at the cross of Calvary. Help us to know Thy love for us. And fill our hearts with love for Thee. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.